Thank you for downloading the Root Simple Podcast. Kelly has jury duty this week, and I had no guest. Coincidentally, Eric Rochow of the Garden Fork Podcast also had no guests or host this week, so we both agreed to be on each other's podcasts. This is the second time we've had Eric on, and in this episode, he discusses tapping maple trees and making syrup, grilling steaks on coals, crowdfunding, pie crusts, and meditation apps. Well, welcome, Eric, to the Root Simple Podcast. You're, you're an emergency guest and co-host this week, because Kelly is off on jury duty. So thanks for um, being a last-minute guest. I really wasn't doing anything anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> we were both sitting around in front of our computers. You might as well it's just way too hot outside. No, no kidding, right? Hot. They are hot. Hot. They're out where you are. You are. Are you in Brooklyn right now? Yeah, yeah. We're in Brooklyn. There's. Uh, I think it's the last heat wave of summer here. Uh, end of August, you get a couple hot days, and so we're just. I got the blinds down, and uh, we're hunkered down. And then beautiful fall is around the corner, right? Where the leaves turn and. Yeah, we have this thing called fall in New England. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No. Uh, my co-host, Rick, uh, my usual Garden Fork Radio host, Rick, calls it the long, sloping shoulder of summer. And it's, I, it's, it's my favorite time of year because it's, the days get a little shorter and cooler, but you can still do a lot outside. And you can get in some last seeds of, uh, you know, you want to grow some cold weather crops or some lettuces and greens and stuff. You can still get, make that happen. And there's a lot of actually town fairs and uh, festivals and agricultural fairs that happen in the early fall, which are really kind of fun around New England. So like a harvest festival. So the, those uh, crops you're doing, I assume you have some hoop houses. I think we talked about that the last time you were on the show. Yeah, I actually in the middle of the summer, I don't use them, but I will pull one. I'm going to seed a bed with some salad greens and then that will be at the ready and we'll drop that on. If you put one of those on, you can grow kale and some really hardy stuff almost through the whole winter. And then it becomes, it looks almost dead. And then in the late winter, it starts to kick in again and it starts to grow. So you're like, wow, I just, I didn't have to do anything. And there you go. Because, you know, snow for me, I just, I have no idea what it's like there. This must be, did you, do you like, is the winter season a time for contemplation and reading heavy books? That's what I imagine. Or you're out there, you're out there gardening and doing other stuff, right? And what is, what is the winter I'm like? I'm tapping my sugar maple trees. Oh, that's right. That's sugar maple. I forgot about that. Because you, you have another house, it should be said, if people haven't heard you on the podcast before. So what's, what's, what's involved in tapping sugar maple trees? I, you know, I, actually, I was just reading the Nearing's book. Um, what's that one called? The Good Life, right? And they did that, too, up mm -hmm. in Vermont. What's, what's involved in tapping, tapping uh, maple? Well, first, you have to make sure it's a sugar maple. Uh, you can also tap red maples as well, but it... A lot of people think, oh, I have a maple tree in my yard. I can tap it. Um, if it's not a sugar maple or a red maple, it does the this, this sap coming out of the tree does not have a high enough sugar content to bother boiling it. Like Norway maples, which are uh, a non-native, um, are ubiquitous in the United States now, and they don't work. But you, uh, you basically spend the early part of the winter looking at the pitch of your land and figuring out where you're going to, I run lines rather than buckets. Um, and you basically want gravity to be your friend and you run a line from one tree to the other and you, it slowly pitches down and you have a, I have some food grade plastic barrels that I collect the sap in. And um, it's just kind of, it's, 
the you know the end of winter in New England, you're kind of going you know kind of nutty, and so you want to go outside, and it gives you something to do. So, so the season for tapping is is when to win. It's usually uh, near the Daytona 500, <laughs> which okay. is President's Day weekend, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, but you have to start preparing before that. You if you know if you have an evaporator, you have to get your buckets out and you clean them because there are spider webs in them. Uh, if you have a sugar house, there's going to be mice in there that you got to have to deal with. And through the winter, you're probably splitting wood because your evaporator inhales wood. I collect, I collect um, pallets basically through the summer and the fall for that kind of thing. Tell me about but the evaporator. Uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I'll just tell you about that. The evaporator I built is inspired by um, a historic house in Ohio, I think it is. And it's, I learned about it from the Earth Eats uh, podcast, which is a uh, really, really neat um, – it's an NPR podcast called Earth Eats. But it's a metal filing cabinet that you lay on its back and you pull the drawers out and you cut all the metal out of the top and you drop in stainless steel uh, steam table trays. And then I cut a fire door in the bottom of it – well, the side of it nominally. And then I put a chimney on the other end of it. And that puppy gets really, really hot. <laughs> so I was amazed at how hot the thing got. I didn't really think it would work very well. And it, you, I got to the point where you couldn't st- – if you got within like one foot of it, you would start to melt your pants. So, <laughs> so you, you light a fire. Now, can it get too hot? I'm, I'm still a little unclear on this. So you've got this, this metal evaporation thing and you light a fire under it. And then how – I mean how long does the fire go? How long does it take? Well, you – you, the ratio is 40 gallons of sap makes one gallon of syrup. And you need the sugar uh, to be about 66% of the final product. So it's a lot of – you're boiling off a lot of water. So the first trick you do, and this is, can be controversial, is you allow the sap to freeze in your buckets. And then you pull out – what freezes is my, mainly water and the sugary, syrupy stuff freezes at a lower temperature. So you can pull out big chunks of ice and let them drain, and that's mainly water. So you've, you've pulled a lot of water out of your sap already. And then the boiling, I mean, it's like boiling pasta on the stovetop. The, the, the water doesn't overboil or burn or anything, but um, wood fires you know, tend to burn quite hot, especially if they're hardwood fires. It's just, you know, it's just, I'm kind of tongue-tied, but it's really fun to do. Well, what's, what's controversial about the freezing part of it? There are some people that contend that there's enough sugar, there's enough sap with sugar in it, content in it, in that frozen chunks that you're throwing away. You're basically throwing away sap. You're wasting sap. I see. And sap is pretty, it's pretty sacred. You know, it's, it's hard to get. You don't want to over tap a tree. You know, you tap, how many taps you put in the tree is dependent on the diameter of the tree. And I always under tap anyway. I put one or two taps in. There's, couple of really big trees I put three taps in, but that's about it. So they're thinking, oh, you're just throwing out syrup. Uh, okay. But you have to figure out the BTUs, the BTUs you have to expend to melt that ice, to melt, to get that little bit of sugar out of there. It's, you're actually saving BTUs by just dumping the ice. And what's the capacity of your system? It, well, I have two deep steam table trays. So if you imagine you go to um, your buffet, your like typical Las Vegas kind of buffet, um, the deeper trays that maybe have a whole big thing of macaroni and cheese in them or something, I'm boiling with two of those. And though they will hold 
probably about um, six to eight gallons at a time. And you're constantly, uh, f- you're constantly spooning or ladling in more sap because it boils off fairly quickly. And you're concentrating it and concentrating it and concentrating it. And then I actually finish it, the final boil, I do on a propane uh, turkey deep fryer burner mm-hmm. because you can control it a little easier. You, there's a fine line between maple syrup, which at my house is 217 and a half degrees, and then maple candy, which in which it crystallizes when it cools off. So if you boil it too hot, it becomes candy rather than syrup. Have you so done that? So there's a fine line there. Yeah, yeah, it happens. You, you just, you just, you know, you eat it anyway. <laughs> so you're. This is not a set up and walk away thing. Then you're, you're, you're standing there ladling and you're watching the temperature. Yeah, it's an all day thing. But it's, it's your friends come over. There's usually uh, some, uh, some sort of bourbon involved with uh-huh. this. You know, uh, some people cook hot dogs. They bring hot dogs and buns, and the fire is so hot. Anything you put near it's going to burn. You know, so you just. You know, you cook hot dogs or, you know, your your veggie dogs or whatever you want. And it's just a New England thing. That's, you know, you're, it's, I love it. So, Sounds cool. Well, speaking of, fiber. yeah, speaking of fire, you, you also did a podcast and a video recently about charcoal steaks, cooking right on the coal. You want to say something about that? Yeah, I learned, I always, I'm always kind of late to the party. You know, the, I know I've, I've jumped the shark when, um the New York Times food section does something because I'm always thinking about an idea for a video and they do it before I do. And I'm like, don't, you know, but Matt and Ted Lee, who are writers, oh, obviously they're writers, they're food writers uh, based in the Carolinas. They did a story about a restaurant in Dallas where they cook what's called an Eisenhower style steak. And evidently Dwight Eisenhower after his presidency would invite people over to his home in Texas and he would have like a three inch steak he would oil it with uh, olive oil, I think it was said, and he would lay it right on chunk charcoal. Then when there's no grill, there's no grating, it's just right on chunk charcoal. And you'd flip it, and they were delicious. And so Matt and Ted Lee did some uh, different tests with that. And the gentleman in Dallas, I think it's the restaurant's called Smoke or Blaze. I'll, I'll ruin that, but I'll, I'll give you the link. He does a dry rub which is coffee, brown sugar, uh, pimentón, like a Spanish paprika, some coarse salt, and uh, chili powder if you want. I don't put the chili powder on. Some cinnamon. And that dry rub kind of is like a buffer between the steak and the charcoal. And it worked out brilliantly. It was like so cool not to have to mess with the grill. I just took chunk charcoal and two big chimneys and I got a 9 by 13 cake pan, and I just dumped it into the cake pan to keep it all contained so it wouldn't fall all over the place. And you just lay the steaks on there. And the, the dry rub, the coffee in the dry rub, the flavor really comes out. You can smell it on the grill. And you do have to be fairly proactive about how long to cook that puppy. And you flip it, and I use one of those digital thermometers. I jam it in the side. Because I over, I kind of overcooked a couple of them. But even when they were kind of like past medium rare, which is what I like, they were delicious. And then the next day, like for leftover steak, the coffee flavor was really pronounced. It was really kind of fun. It was like coffee steak. Now, did you have to have a conversation with your butcher to get those thick cuts? Yeah, all you got to do is call them. I mean, I I go to an independent grocery store in in the in the town near us, 
and I happen to the butcher is my neighbor. But even if even if the butcher isn't your neighbor, the steaks they put out in the the cellophane pack or whatever the heck that's called, they're always thin and they're just they they cook in about thirty seconds on a grill. I'm like, why do you do that? But I guess it's because people don't want to spend a lot of money on a steak. But I got what's called New York strip steaks, and they actually happen to be on sale. So the day before, I actually called them and said, hey, could you cut me some two-inch New York strips? And they said, sure. And it took them all of 10 minutes, and I went down there and picked them up. And it was perfect. And they were fairly inexpensive for considering the kind of meat we were eating. It's nice. Were there some side dishes you did on the coals? Is that possible? Potatoes, things like that? You could put, you could put potatoes in there and stuff. I... um. My charcoal always kind of peters out fairly quickly. I don't know about everybody else, but you know the books and the videos all make it seem like you can cook a million things on your coals. But I don't know why, but my coals just kind of like die out quickly. And you did a video on this, of course, right? Yeah, it's on our YouTube channel, and it's also on the GardenFork.tv site right there on the front page. You just click on that puppy. It's a great – it's some great photos. It's just kind of this giant thing of steak on these hardwood coals. It was kind of fun. Steak porn, as it were. Anyways, ah. <laughs> um, so those those steaks are a little expensive. Now, um, you've been doing some crowdfunding recently uh, for your website and your podcast and your videos. Uh, how's that How's that worked out for you? It's actually gone really well. I, I kind of wanted um, – Eric and I were talking about things to talk about on the, on the Root Simple podcast, and it's something I wanted to tell people about is that if you have a creative endeavor – that's ongoing. And rather than doing like a Kickstarter or uh, Indiegogo, which is kind of like a project funding and like Kickstarter is all or nothing. You know, either you meet your goal and, or you don't get funded. Patreon is like an art patron model. And I knew about it for a long time. And, I, and I'm a kind of a procrastinator like Eric here. And I finally started it. And the, I was like 30 people signed up within a week. And I was really kind of amazed by that. And it wasn't that hard to do. I made a video about it and I explained to people. And there's thousands and thousands of Garden Fork video viewers. But there is a core there that really likes what you do. And there is a core that understands the amount of work that goes into it. And my whole pitch was $3 a month for Garden Fork is a cup of coffee a month. So if you could do without a cup of coffee a month and give it a Garden Fork, that's $36 a year, which is like a magazine subscription basically. And a bunch of people have kind of stepped up to the plate. And I, I didn't really offer a lot in uh, gifts and thank yous. I made some, uh, I have some garden fork magnetic decals that I give out and I'll send everyone that. But I wanted to kind of spread the word if people are listening and say they're an artist, a comic book artist or a graphic novel artist, or they do paintings or uh, they have a band, they do songs. You could go out and say to your fans, hey, if you want to directly support me, I can do more of the stuff that you enjoy. And it, it just worked out really well, and I just want to tell everyone about it. Yeah, I asked our uh, readers on the blog, because we had a, you know, the, there's been some bad uh, publicity about Amazon recently, and we have Amazon affiliate links, so I was feeling a little yeah. questionable about that. And so I, I posed the question, and people said yes, yes. Um, you know, we'd be willing to support you through some kind of crowdfunding resource. Uh, one one listener, uh, Michael, actually uh, wrote and, and asked me if I'd seen the Amanda Palmer TEDx talk. Have you watched that, Eric, by any chance? Yeah. Yeah, she's done very well. Yeah. Did you have any she's, thoughts about 
about that and her her I mean because there's been some controversy with her too and and crowdfunding as well yeah I well Amanda's she's a unique case um she's just one of those Svengali kind of artists that just creates amazing stuff but she also has quite a bit of overhead and she's she's raised a lot of money through some different fund crowdfunding campaigns and she got some flack for the amount of money versus what she was paying other people to help her work on it. But she did kind of defend it and talk about the costs that do go into that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm okay with it. It's, I mean, garden fork, the, the web server is $600 a year and the, um, the podcast server is $200 a year. So it, it just, you know, that kind of stuff. And then hard drives, are a hundred and ninety dollars a piece, so it all adds up, you know. Right, and then there's kind of the ethics of you and I working for free too, which is not—it's not fair to other people making creative content. So you could argue it that way and say that you know there should be some kind of remuneration for what we do. Yeah, the whole idea of being able to do Garden Fork full time would be amazing. There was on YouTube, you know, I put up this Patreon video asking people to join on YouTube, and there was some blowback, but. Uh, the YouTube audience is a little different than like an iTunes audience. And there's a misconception that on YouTube you make a lot of money and you don't. I I have 53,000 subscribers on YouTube and I don't make a full-time job. Yeah, it's getting worse and worse, right? I mean, they're they're reducing the amount of of, um, revenue you get from YouTube. Well, it's all market-based. I mean, it's it's all based on ads and what people want to pay to run their ads versus your content. And I mean, I could fill an hour on that, but... um, there, the, my my key the key things here is you already have to have a following. You can't just start a Patreon campaign and not have already like an email list. I think the first thing any cre- content creator should do is create an email list that you own. It's not it's not through some service. I would I use Mailchimp. Mailchimp is free for the first two thousand, and then I actually will have to pay for my email list now. <laughs> so that's another cost. But you, that email list is golden, and those are the people that want you in their inbox every week. And there's a subset of people on your email list that will become patrons. So you have to have kind of a core group that's going to buy into this. It could at first be family members or coworkers or something, but it will, I don't know if it'll kind of take on its own steam, but I get this kind of slow and steady trickle. And every time I send out an email with new content, you know, I custom write a little newsletter. I mention it. I don't drum people over the head with it. Um, in the podcast, I mention it once every podcast and people, it's kind of like me, like, like, I'm like, oh yeah, I really should donate to the Red Cross, but I forget for a couple months and I'm like, oh yeah, I got to do that Red Cross thing. So they'll go, oh yeah, I got to do that Eric Garden Fork thing. And then they sign up. So, and that most of them do not expect a lot in return. I get, I get emails from the people that signed up and said, I know, I can only imagine what it's like to create. I make two videos a week. You know, it's like, what is that like to do that? Plus do your other jobs and stuff. So I just, I love the idea of people being able to directly fund someone that they enjoy their stuff. Yeah. There's a part of it that Amanda Palmer touches on though, that I, I just having trouble getting over with. And I wonder how you dealt with this, this issue is, is she says, well, you got to get over the idea that it's begging and she has, Oh, it's not begging at all. Right. So why isn't it begging? How is it different? I think it's kind of like it's kind of like artists that work with an art gallery, you know, they're like this is this is my thing and this is, you know, this is the price and 
instead of an art gallery, I have Patreon, which takes about 9% because they have to do the credit card transaction and, you know, pay their workers. Um, no, I think it's totally uh, people putting their money where their mouth is. I really do. I think if you harp on it too much, it might sound like begging. Hmm. But um, no, not at all. Not at all. Do you have Amazon links too? We do. And I also, you know, and, and for a long time, I also did IndieBound links, which has, uh, in, that's an independent, independent book, bookstore network. And they offer affiliate links as well. And it, it takes a lot of time to build those links. And for, well, if I'd write about a book or whatever. So the, um, but no one would click on the IndieBound links. They would just, they, they would just go to Amazon. So we do make some money from Amazon, but it's not a big deal for us. So I don't really harp on it. It's there. You know, people want to shop. Did you have any feelings about uh, whether whether it's ethical or not, given the you know sort of scandals Amazon has had in terms of its treatment of its employees? I think if it wasn't Amazon, it would be somebody else doing the same thing. I mean, the that that world is kind of is is it's tough. I mean, the corporate world is tough. I think um, you and I kind of are very lucky in a way that we set our hours and we and we create what we want, um, and but we don't work on a cube farm, and it's it's a different world there. So. Well, uh, I had one last topic, if you don't mind. Oh, after that, we'll talk about something else. Yeah, well, actually, I have two more topics if there is time. But um, this is totally self self interest. But pie crust? Do you do you have? Uh, are you good at pie crust? Because I am terrible at a pie crust. I think people need to get over the whole pie crust thing. <laughs> it, there's I won't name names, but there are some. It's a very popular food website in which they obsess about a flaky crust and i'm like you know it's a dessert that you're having with some friends uh, i make an okay pie crust i i use the food processor to blend the butter into the flour until it supposedly looks like cornmeal or whatever you know and i don't get super flaky crust but my friends like it, it there's just this i mean we kind of mentioned the food poor thing but there's i just think we need to kind of get away from making everything look amazing and just kind of <laughs> Be more in the moment and enjoy, you know, the friendship of your friends and like, oh, they made a nice pie. Thanks. Well said. I, I always have a flakiness breakdown, so I just need to get over it. Yeah. Just breathe. <laughs> Relax. I've been, I've, I started meditating. So. Oh, yeah. Headspace is a very cool app, if anyone's thinking about it. Oh, yeah. It. yeah well, I'll say something about that. What is Headspace and what kind of meditation do you do? Well, um, I learned about it from a Google talk, actually, that Dan Harris did. He's a television news anchor and he had a meltdown on air a, pan a panic attack you know and uh, if you google dan harris google talks it will come up and he wrote a book about his basically trying to medicate himself and then trying to use um uh, drugs to deal with this and then he discovered through his work he discovered meditation and um basically was able to calm the monkey in his head uh the buddhists call it monkey brain I call it the hamster wheel. You have this kind of voice in your head that's constantly yammering at you, maybe criticizing you, or why'd you do that? Or, oh, I could have done this. And, you know, you're angry at the guy that just cut you off in the car and that kind of thing. And um, he, at the end of his talk, someone at Google said, could you recommend the meditation app? And he said, yes, Headspace. And by the way, Dan Harris has come out with his own app since then, a 10% happier app, but I haven't checked out yet. And it's a, it just kind of, it kind of handholds you through meditation, has some very nice little how-to videos with animations, has what's called guided meditation, 
because I'm not very good at sitting still anyway. And so the, vo- the, the guy's voice comes on and he kind of talks you through it. And I found it very helpful because I, I kind of tamed the hamster wheel. Like when someone cuts me off, I might yell, but I'm not, I don't dwell on it. I'm like, okay, he was an unkind person. Let's focus on the next thing here, you know. So with the pie crust, and it'd be like, you know, okay, well. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people that go, be in the moment. And now I kind of more understand that. Hmm. And hmm. like the other day, we were um, inspecting one of the beehives. And I had a frame it was full of brood and, it, and the sun was beautiful and there were a thousand bees on this frame and my wife was with me. She, was, she keeps the bees with me and I just kind of like stood there and was just staring at this frame and just kind of breathing and I was in the moment and my wife was like, hello, hello, you know, because we're supposed to be working in the hive. But I just kind of had this like and I was like, wow, I never really did that before. I just kind of stopped. And, you know, smelled the roses, you know, smelled the flowers kind of thing. And it's because of this uh, Dan Harrison, this app. Nice. Well, I can't... That was unsolicited. How's that? Yeah, that was beautiful. I can't think of a better way to conclude the podcast. You um, want to say something about your website and what you're up to and what's next and podcasts and how people can get in touch with you? Yeah, you can come to GardenFork.tv. Um, and then we have an audio podcast on iTunes, much like... Um, Eric and Kelly. And then the gardenfork.tv website is, um, it's just chock full of stuff. There's like a thousand pages on it now. Some of them aren't very good, but <laughs> if you're interested in pizza ovens, there's a lot of pizza oven information there. You're selling yourself so, short. There's a lot of good stuff on there. Well, thank yeah. you, Eric, for being an emergency guest. We should have like a glass box we can break each other out of. Emergency David Letterman purposes. had, who was that morning oh, talk yeah, show right. guy? That's right. That was a David Letterman joke, wasn't it? He did have an emergency guest like that. Who was the guy? I can't remember. That's was it the sportscaster guy? No, it was Regis. Regis, Regis Philbin. That's Regis right. Regis Philbin. You know when yes. Regis Philbin was on Letterman that the guest had canceled. Right. <laughs> I am your Regis Philbin. God, is he still around? If only we could have Regis Philbin on our mutual podcast. We really. <laughs> He's in New York. So oh, there we go. Give him a call. Fry up a steak for him. <laughs> okay, Eric. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Sure. See everyone. Remember to breathe. Yes, that was Eric Rochow of the Garden Fork Podcast. You can find his videos and podcasts at gardenfork.tv and on YouTube. And an editorial note, we've decided for the time being to keep our Amazon affiliate links. We conducted an informal poll on the blog, and the consensus seems to be that most of you thought we need to pick our battles, and that uh, most people seemed okay with our Amazon links. I'm still working on offering alternatives, perhaps a zine, or a Patreon campaign, or both. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591, or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.